right. Well, I'm very pleased to introduce our guests today, uh, Kirsten Siggins and Kathy Tabiner. And Kathy and Kirsten are based in British Columbia, Canada, and they're the co-founders of the Institute of Curiosity, which is a boutique coaching and consulting firm that specializes in effective conversation skills for work and parenting. Kirsten and Kathy work with growth-minded entrepreneurs, small businesses, and professionals and help them develop the workplace communication skills needed to succeed. They're also the co-authors of a great book that I've just finished called The Power of Curiosity. So Kirsten and Kathy, welcome to How to Choose. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're excited to be here. So I guess as an opening question, what has drawn you to study and write about the topic of curiosity? And would you say that you are naturally curious people? I'm going to defer to you, Mom, on that one because it started with you. <laughs> I, I think that I have become a naturally curious person. I got back into the workforce and was working as an occupational therapy in industry, realized that leadership needed change, went back and did a graduate degree in leadership, then decided if I'm really going to make a change, I need to learn how to coach. So I did an executive coaching program. One of the foundational pieces of it is curiosity. And what I learned was, as a coach, you ask these deep, curious questions, and it helps the, the client, they're in a safe space, and it helps them explore, better understand and figure out what they want to do. So long story short, started talking to Kirsten, Kirsten did her coaching, we got more and more involved in this. And I was very involved in a coaching management program. And what we learned from it was that Coaching is great, but the fundamental skills of coaching being founded in curiosity, that's where the power was. That's where the change happened. When people began to really understand each other, it was magic. And the more we explored it, the more we realized how powerful it was. Um, what we've learned through our own experiences and through research is that when you're curious in conflict, you can find common ground, understanding common ground and move forward. So it can be a really simple approach to dealing with challenging conversations. Yeah, that's fantastic. And we might come back to that because that was one of the things that stood out to me in uh, listening to the book was this idea of shifting your mindset and shifting your attitude, that there's something that changes internally when you move from a judgmental mindset to a curious mindset and and just the power of that. So as I said, we might come back to that one. Kirsten, when we were exchanging messages ahead of the interview, you made a comment that really piqued my curiosity. And you'd said that almost everyone believes they are curious, that we all have those passions that that we like to learn about, but where most people are not curious is in conversation. So can you just building on what Kathy said, explore that a little bit more? Yeah, well, I think that was, for me, that was the aha moment because, I mean, when we do workshops and we ask, how many of you are curious? Like, inevitably, every hand goes up because we all have passions. We read books. You know, there are things that we're curious about in life. But when we have conversations, what we learned was that that's where we're not curious. And part of that is, I think, culturally, society, you know, it depends on where you live. But generally speaking, we're rewarded for and we're taught to be an expert, speak up, speak your mind, be an expert. I know for myself, I thought I was an amazing listener. I thought it was an amazing communicator. I mean, that's what I was hired for. I worked in the entertainment industry. I worked as a producer. Like there were things at my job, that's what I was hired for. And so 
it wasn't until I had kids and we started doing this work where I realized I actually am not listening and I'm not a great communicator. I'm a great teller. I'm a great fixer and solver, and I'm a great judger, but I'm not curious in my conversations to better understand the perspectives of others. And that is the superpower of curiosity and conversations. And so we've been doing this for about what, 15 years, mom ish plus maybe more or close to 20. And, you know, even when we work with professionals and we do workshops with professionals, professional communicators, that is inevitably the piece that always comes back where it's like, yeah, I'm not curious in my conversations. I like to tell, I like to judge and we blame and shame and we don't even realize that we're doing it right? It's like this old muscle. It's just this habit in our conversations. And then that, and that also leads to conflict. I think it's important to remember, you know, when you're not curious in a conversation and you're judging and blaming and shaming, not intentionally, but it happens, that leads to conflict. Whereas in curiosity, you're focused on the speaker. You're listening to understand. You're listening to understand the perspectives of others. We're not saying you have to like and agree with what they're saying. The goal is just to understand where people are coming from and that's, you, you have better conversations. That's how you deepen your relationships. And it's also how you move your business forward. So it's this really interesting thing because I think curiosity right now is having a big moment about being more curious in our life. And I think that's really important. But Kathy and I would say it's even more important to be curious in your conversations. That's an interesting one. And I, I like the reference to it as a superpower because I've just become aware of, or starting to become aware of this too, after many years of similarly thinking I was a great listener and realizing that I'm spending a lot of time preparing my next statement in my head. And, and I would imagine too, that if you've got two people who are not, not really curious, it's probably easy to talk at cross purposes. Would you find that that's the case? Well, we taught, yeah, we'll be, then we're, we're listening, we're, we're speaking to be heard rather than listening to understand. So you can have two people that just talk at each other. And just like you're saying, we're thinking about the next thing that we're going to say or being right or making it a point or showing we're an expert or whatever it may be, but we're not necessarily listening to understand the information of the other person. We're not interested in understanding what's their perspective, you know, where are they coming from? What, how come they're feeling this way? It, instead, we get stuck in that narrow mindset of like, I'm right, and now I must prove that I'm right. And it and it leads to conflict almost always. Mm. Now, as a father and, and a former high school teacher, I've seen plenty of evidence to indicate that children are naturally curious. And I think you mentioned this as well in the book, but it often seems that for some reason that innate curiosity diminishes as we get older. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about why that's the case. And, and just more generally, what are some of the curiosity killers? I think you touched on them a little bit there, Kirsten, in terms of some of the cultural contributors that, that shape us to be not curious. I've just been reading some research on that, and it appears that that is fallacy. And that, in fact, we have continued to have curiosity throughout our lives. It's us who turn it off. It's available to us and we can, and it creates dopamine and it does all the good things. But for some reason, as we, not everyone, but a lot of people, it's just something that we don't do. And one of the pieces of research I was reading is around the access to dopamine decreases as we get older. And whether that because we're getting less dopamine, we're not feeling as good about curiosity, decreases it. 
I'm not, that wasn't concluded in, in the research. I think what happens as we get older, and it starts fairly young, we get shut down for being curious. And I think in a lot of school systems, there's so many people and it's not something that's really encouraged. And so just do what I say. And then we go to university and if we choose to go into a profession, we're taught to tell, to give advice. And so the whole layer of learning to understand, we choose not to go there. And we're it's fast paced. We don't have a lot of time. A patient comes in and says, I have an earache. It doesn't really matter what it is. Or someone goes into a law firm and don't necessarily explore and ask those questions to better understand. We go fix and solve. And that's not a criticism of the profession. We've all been trained as professionals to work that way. And so there are a lot of factors that contribute to and make it appear that we we're not as curious as we get older, and yet we still have as much access to curiosity as we do as a two-year-old who's going, why, why, why? That drives every parent nuts. Well, and I think the just to piggyback on top of that, I have two teenagers. And and it's really interesting because when the kids were younger, I, I'm a fixer, I'm a solver, I'm a teller. Again, that goes back to my days. That's what I was hired to do. And then I realized I was doing it with my kids and kids are so curious when they're young, right? Like they're just, they want to know and they're sponges. And so what gets harder as, you know, as the kids start asking more questions, this happens at school as well. It's seen as pushback from parents, right? Parents take it as pushback. And when I'm working with parents, I'll say to them, do you want an obedient kid or do you want a critical thinking kid? And we all want critical thinking kids until we're having conversations where we're like, I want an obedient kid, right? Like, I don't want to have this pushback. And that's where you get into the conflict. And so it's one of those things, like, we don't give kids what I, I see quite often and I hear from my kids all the time is we shut them down where we don't want to hear. We don't want to answer. The, we don't have time. We don't know. We want them to just do it. We got to get out the door, whatever it may be, or they want something and they're pushing back. And we, again, we're just like, why won't you just do what I say? We want them to be obedient. It's the same in the classroom. You know, when kids stand up for themselves or they ask for something, often they're penalized for it because it's seen as pushback. And then we throw them out into the world and we want them to go have jobs and work in teams and advocate for themselves and stand for something. And yet in their formative years, we never gave them that opportunity. And so it's a really interesting thing when you start to look. I agree with Kathy because I came to curiosity at 30. And it was because my mom became more curious with me, right? And the more that she became curious, the more I wanted to become curious. And it changed our relationship. And, you know, it's not that we don't have access to curiosity. We, it's, we always have access to it. It's just whether we want to take the time to better understand ourselves, which not everybody wants to do, and take the time to better understand others. And it's literally life-changing and it deepens your relationships in ways that, I don't know, Kathy, how do you even quantify it? Like it's just, it is literally life-changing how your relationships change. Something that I'm just thinking as you're talking, um, my wife and I often think to ourselves, like what we're, what we're trying to do is build adults, building that sense of autonomy, responsibility, those skills. But it's hard to see that sometimes I find when you're looking at children, because the skills that make a child a good child, at least from a parent's point of view, are not necessarily the same skills that make them a good adult in the world. I think there's a lot of things that, and parents who are listening, I'm sure, 
are relating to this too, the fact that there's a lot of stresses and pressures on and time is, you know, the biggest pressure in, I think, in Western cultures where we just, we cram far too much into our day and it doesn't allow us to do most things very well. But I loved, and I wonder if you could tell the story, Kirsten, of uh, just a simple story of when your son was little, saying, I want to wear the, the pants that I, I want to wear the <laughs> pants that I wore yesterday. I want to wear the pants that I wore yesterday. And it was just a beautiful little story. So I'll hand that over to you to retell. I tell this story a lot. My son was three when it happened. And he, we lived in California. We lived in LA at the time. And he loved to wear a seersucker suit every day to preschool and it, with a little pink tie. And it was like, so crazy adorable, but completely unpractical because yeah. the kid was three. So every night I would have to wash this suit so that he had it the next day. And one morning about eight o'clock, you know, it's one of those busy days where we're strapped for time and I'm reaching for the car keys to get out the door to get him to preschool. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, like he has no pants on. So I say to him, where are your pants? And he says to me, I want my pants from yesterday. And I immediately remember, like, I forgot to wash them. They're so dirty. And, you know, I'm like berating myself for that. And so I said, and you know what? I forgot to wash your pants. They're dirty. Can you please pick another pair of pants? We are late. We got to get out the door. And he just, he says, no, I want my pants from yesterday. So I think, okay, I'm not doing this right. So I get down on my knees and I look him in the eye and I say, like, I hear you. You know, like every parenting book. Like, I'm thinking I nailed this. Like, I hear you. I hear that you want your pants from yesterday, but I feel like you're not hearing me. They're dirty. So can you just please pick another pair of pants? Because we're late. We got to get out the door. I'm like high-fiving myself in my mind. I'm grabbing the keys. And he turns like bright red and starts screaming at me. I want my pants from yesterday. I want my pants. I want my pants. So now he's hysterically crying and I am mad right? I've got this ticker tape going through my brain of all the things and how this is going to affect my day. So I turn on my heel and I march into the laundry room and I grab the pair of pants and I come back and I sort of shove them in his face, like super not proud parenting moment. Mm. Like here, wear your pants, right? He takes the pants from me. He goes into the pocket. He pulls out a toy. He hands me back the pair of pants, puts on a fresh pair and like through snotty tears, he's like, I'm ready. Oh. And I literally, I wanted the world to swallow me whole. And I just remember in that moment, I was like, oh, you wanted your pants. I mean, he was so clear about wanting his pants. And I had made all of these assumptions because I was not focused on listening to him. I was not focused on what he needed. I wasn't focused on him at all. I was focused on all the things that I need to do to get out the door. And I just made an assumption that he wanted to wear the pants. So I immediately do a repair and I say to him, how can we ensure that this never happens again? And he said to me, mom, you could have just asked. Mm. Yes, I could have. Any number of questions. How could you wipe your pants? How could you want to wear dirty pants? Like I could have asked a lot of questions. We would have been out the door pretty much on time, relationship intact. Mm. And look, I feel that as a parent too. I can, I, I'm visualizing this little crying boy. But, you know, look, I've done the same thing. And I think, and probably many times, just when the kids are little and, and you're under pressure and you think, look, I don't have time for fact-finding. We've got a, some goals to achieve here. But it's a, it's a powerful illustration. And I mean, if, if we kind of project that into our relationships, it's the same thing in many situations, isn't it? Where we jump to a judgment 
and uh, instead of just asking maybe a few more questions to understand. And I had something um, come to my attention this week where somebody had had, someone at work had reported something to me that they were concerned about a particular training course that they'd been on and had, had something had happened. And immediately I could feel these emotional reactions. You know, I had formed a judgment based on a small amount of information and I was ready to go out and start enacting some kind of justice. And it, and I just, it struck me that maybe there's a need to do a little bit of fact finding here before I go and start writing angry emails or, or making telephone calls. But the point is that this is ev- choices that we have every day, day, every interaction every day to say, have I rushed to form a judgment? Or have I paused to try and really understand um, the situation? And I think that's a key message that I took from the book is just the importance of that curiosity in trying to understand. And maybe that's a segue to a related question, because sometimes the important decisions that we make in life have a big impact on other people. And we can be thinking very much about what does this decision do for me? What are the benefits for me? What are the costs for me? But I'm interested to just unpack this a little bit with you both, because you would be coaching people in these skills just to understand how applying curiosity can help us to understand the concerns of in- and interests of others when it comes to decision making. When we're as parents, I think what I learned and what I hear and what I experience around is that we think we know more about our kids than we often do. So we make a lot of assumptions. We'll make decisions for the family without ever consulting them, you know, thinking that we know more or that they don't know enough to have an opinion or that they're, you know, we're the parents. So we're the, you know, sort of like hierarchy of the family. And therefore, our decision is the our input is the only input that matters. And it goes, it's kind of like, you know, we rob our kids. Then as our kids get older, they don't know how to make decisions because we've robbed them of every opportunity to do so. When Kathy and I work with teens or go into high schools, or even when we're working with teachers, like often, well, more specifically with teens, but often teens will say, well, no, I don't listen to my, my parents. They had years of listening to me and they didn't listen to me. So why should I listen to them? You know, and parents are always like in the teenagers, my kid doesn't listen to me. My kid doesn't listen to me. And we've been given so many opportunities through their life, but we're busy doing, we're busy, all these things, making assumptions, thinking we know more. And we never really give, we often miss opportunities to give our kids either skin in the game to make decisions or listen to their voice and understand their perspective because we just think we know more than we actually do. Like I thought my son wanted to wear the pants when he didn't. And so unless we have these curious conversations, one of the examples that comes to mind was working with teens. They were in a, in a high school. They said, you know, my parents are always forcing me to go to parties because back in their day, that's they had so much fun at parties and that's how they met their friends. And they were going on about like the good old days, a hundred years ago, that's what you did at parties. That's not what we do at parties now. Like, I don't want to go to a party. And so they were giving all these reasons why they didn't want to go to a party. And their parents were just like, you need to go to this party and you need to meet these people and you need, you need, you need, you're going, you don't have a choice. And these kids were just like, they're not, they don't understand because they're not asking them, well, who's at the party? What are you doing at the party? Like, how come you want to go to the party? I mean, there's so many questions that you can ask around that. How come you don't want to go to the party? What happens at these parties? What's stopping you from going? You know, I mean, we just don't take the time to understand. And when you ask those questions, 
It helps them process the information. You know, what do you do if somebody gives you a drink? What do you do if your friend is drunk and is supposed to drive you home? Unless we simulate those scenarios by asking those questions, it helps them process these half-baked ideas. It helps them figure out, yeah, who am I? What do I do? What do I stand for? And it gives them skin in the game to take autonomy over their own life. So every time we make a decision for our kids, every time, regardless of what age, you know, and we don't ask for that input, we rob them of that ability of learning how to do it for themselves. And then we're mad at them when they don't know how. It's a really unfair setup that we've put our kids in. It's interesting because what you're talking about there is, again, some of those coaching principles, isn't it? It's not just asking questions to help you as the questioner understand, but it's asking questions to help the other person process as well. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I like to think of parenting as a container. And one of the things that parents struggle with is when our kids are little, like their babies, we're in full control, right? So we, are their lives depend on it. When they're little babies or newborns up until like even at five, three to five, they that's when they start to want that autonomy. And we're so used to that full control that it can be hard for parents to give up that autonomy. But at three to five, like kids have, they want to, they have snacks they want, they've got pajamas they want to wear, books and stories, you know, like they have, they're starting to say, no, I want skin in the game. And then you get into the tweens and then it's like, they want full autonomy, teens, full autonomy. And parents have to sort of start to adjust as our kids shift and change, our parenting has to shift and change. Now, we're not saying like hands off the wheel, don't parent. We're just saying like foot off the gas, right? Where you start to walk beside them, where you can start asking those questions at a young age. It's like, what do you want for dinner? Do you want chicken or rice or meat, tacos, whatever it may be? What pajamas do you want to wear? You know, then as they start to get older, it's again, asking those questions. Okay, what do you think? What do you want? What's happening with your friends? Or they come to you with a problem about a friend. What do you think of that situation? What would you do if that happened to you? That's that coaching process that you're talking about that allows them to think through it. So you hold this container for them where you allow them to make mistakes. Like that's the other part parents forget. Our kids are supposed to make the mistakes. That's their job as they're learning. Give them that space to make the mistakes. Give them that space to make decisions in a safe container so that when they leave home, They've had the opportunity to practice in a place where they are safe to do so. And you have their back if something goes horribly wrong. But often we just try to control our kids and tell them what to do. And the moment they leave home, there is no safety net for them. And that's when they struggle and they're afraid to ask questions and they're afraid to take risks and they're afraid to make decisions because they don't know how. And then again, we blame them for it. But really, we need to take responsibility as parents right? And to help them practice that skill and learn how to take those risks. And asking questions is the only way that you can do that. Being curious is the only way you can do it. Now, the one caveat I want to throw in there for parents listening is, I'm not saying you have to like what your kids are saying. And I'm not saying you have to agree with what your kids are saying. What I'm saying is you want to understand it, right? That's how you build your relationship. You want to understand what they're going through. You want to understand what they need. And that helps you find the common ground to build a plan with your kid to figure out how they want to move forward. Well, maybe I should ask one more question here and I'm channeling parents who are listening. I wonder if sometimes our emotions find us, make it hard for us to remain curious and open as we're asking these questions, That, that we, particularly when we hear things that elicit a very strong 
emotional reaction. We feel angry when we hear our kids describing something that they're doing or, you know, we, we're worried, we're frightened. How do we manage those emotions and ensure that they don't impinge upon us and, and turn us from a curious, interested parent to suddenly a freaked out parent that's that's now saying, you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. How do you manage that? Have you got any any tips? Well, I think Kathy mentioned this before, like when we ask open questions, especially so when you're you're in an emotional situation and you're asking an open question and you get understanding, you know, so like when I said to my son, if I had said to my son in that moment, hysterical moment, like, how come you want your pants? And he said, I want a toy. I would have been like, oh, okay, well, let's get you your toy. When you get understanding, you have a mind, heart opening and oxytocin, like it really helps you manage your emotions. It's like the feel good drug. So when you're in a conversation with somebody, it, people say this a lot, like I met the love of my life or I met my best friend and we had a conversation and they just get me and I felt high, like I was walking on air. That's the oxytocin. We feel like we're seen, heard and understood. So when we get understanding, it allows us to stay calmer because our brains aren't, we're not making up stories. We're not making up assumptions. We're not thinking we know more than we do. And when our kids come to us with a problem or they come to us with a situation and we're able to be curious with them and say, okay, walk me through what happened. Tell me, how did it, you know, how come you made that choice? How did we get to this place? How are you going to fix it? How are you going to make it right? Whatever the context may be. But often as parents, we're like, you can't do that. And how, how dare you treat somebody that way? And you can't live, you know, we go to that judgment of telling them what they can and can't do without ever giving them the opportunity to share what the experience was or how they got to that place. If you allow them to share that experience and how they got to that place, and then you provide them an avenue to say, okay, well, what do you want to do? How do you want to fix it? How do you want to move forward? But even if they say, I don't know, I want your help. That's a bridge. Yeah. Right. And they're learning from that moment mm -hmm. and they are never going to make that same mistake again. But when you tell a kid to not do it, they're not learning anything. They're mm -hmm. just tuning out and being like, I'm what I've learned is I can't go to my parents with a problem because they're just going to shame me and blame me for it. Mm. Oh, that's great. Thank you for those insights. Change is happening a lot. At least we're finding that here and talking to people. Our clients said um, there's a lot of change that's being expected of people. And just looking at the child that Kirsten has described going through the process of growing up, it's much harder. They're fearful of change. They, what's going to happen if I can't do things the way I've always done them? And it makes it much more challenging if they don't happen to have a leader who seeks to understand them and to work with their team in finding ways that will help them overcome whatever fears they have. And everyone comes from a different perspective. So it can be totally different. And it's challenging for that leader. And it's time consuming. And yet, when you do that at the beginning, things will move more smoothly as you go through the process of change. Whereas if you just dump it on people, you're going to get resistance. People are going to fight it. They're going to be fearful. They're not going to be able to think their way out of it. They're not critical thinkers. They haven't learned to adapt. And it's going to be much more challenging. And that's why I think a lot of change fails. Mm -hmm. So as person was talking about parents and curiosity, it's different. And yet the fundamental principles are very similar in that leaders need to be open. They need to better understand their teams so that they can support them in moving forward. And that goes all the way up in an organization. 
And yet, if we don't have that, then you're running on fear, fear of making a mistake, fear of having to do things differently, fear of not being able to cope, fear of um, losing their job, all of those things that in this day and age are very real. And so unless we we have to become curious, better understand, and to, to appreciate the perspectives and the situations that different people on our team are in so that we can support them. And I don't mean in micromanaging. I mean support. What do you need? How can you get this? Uh, what can I do to support you and moving forward? All of those kinds of things. And change it into a learning environment where everyone is wanting to learn, to be curious, and to adapt as change happens, because it's going to happen regardless. We either go along with it or we don't. And yet children who've been raised without parents who have that curiosity, it's going to be much more challenging for them when they get in the workforce. And so we need those leaders who can support them with curiosity. And help them go through change and everything else that happens in the workforce. You know, people say, well, we just don't have time for it. If we don't take the time, mm-hmm. and it's the same in education, medicine, it's in everything. If we're not taking the time up front, it's going to cost us in time down the way or a lack of success. So we really need to do that front end load. And each time it's done, it gets easier because then teams are saying they're, they're more open about identifying what they need to help them be successful. It makes me wonder, Kathy, if there's going to be a great aha moment socially where people realize that all the, the effort we've spent over the last generation to try and compress timeframes so that we can do everything more quickly was a, a false economy, that we actually were completely undermining our, our ability to achieve most outcomes. I've, I've thought about this particularly when you know, a lot of social media is really short clips and, and it's it's all about you can learn this how to play this song on the guitar in five minutes or you can master the you know this skill in in two lessons and you know it's very appealing because we're all so time poor that people want to buy that quick solution the quick fix to whatever the the goal is that they're trying to achieve but in reality what I'm taking out of again taking from listening to the book but taking out of this conversation, is that in fact a time is a key ingredient to make this work. You can't fast track understanding often. Maybe there's ways you can ask more skillful questions to elicit understanding more quickly. But ultimately, it's giving the microphone to someone else and closing your mouth and listening. And I think sometimes maybe that's a bit of fear in that, that we think I've I've got to get this done. I've got to have a quick chat with my staff member because I've got a meeting in 30 minutes. So you've now well, you've now got 15 minutes to tell me the issue and I'll quickly understand it and then I'll act on it and then we'll move on. I think the, the better way to handle that is to say, this could take some time. I have a meeting in 20 minutes and can we talk about this later? A team that I worked with, this is a long time ago, and I think we shared it in the book. It was, it was a nurse and a physician and she knew she had to have a conversation with a physician around a challenging situation. And she was, you know, there's a hierarchy between nurses and doctors, at least in our in our culture. And she was apprehensive about doing it, happened to see this physician in the hallway and just out of the blue decided to be curious because she'd been learning about this. And I'm going to ask open questions and just see what happens. Asked one open question. He said, look, I'm in a rush. I've only got a minute. 
Um, I, she said, oh, this will only take two minutes. I just want to share with you something. Asked the second question, 45 minutes later, they had come up with a plan that was going to support that patient, support similar situations in the future, and ensure that things ran more smoothly. It took 45 minutes there. The other option, if they'd done it in two, would have been that it would have kept coming up and reoccurring and reoccurring. But having that conversation and understanding supported them in the long term. So, I mean, so instead of having a five minute conversation nine times, they did it over time, but it changed how they provided service in a certain situation. And both parties felt hurt that there was no blaming and shaming. They recognized it was a mistake and they knew how to fix it. And I think that's, those are the pieces that we're missing. We're missing how we honor mistakes because mistakes are really juicy. They're one of the best ways for us to learn. And by not having them, we're not moving forward in a way that's beneficial for everyone. That's increasing productivity, success, all the things that organizations want by cutting out those juicy conversations which aren't necessarily valued, we're missing those opportunities. I remember I was coaching someone um, quite a while ago, once again in healthcare. And when we got on the call, I said, oh, how was your day been? And it was now around 3.30, 4 o'clock. And she said, totally useless. I have wasted an entire day. And I said, well, tell me more. Well, I was in the hall and I bumped into so-and-so and we were doing this project. I hadn't been able to get hold of them, but you know that took half an hour. And then and I said, okay, so looking at it a different way, yeah, you didn't complete those concrete tasks. And yet, what did you succeed in doing? Building relationships, ensuring that things were moved more smoothly, better understanding others. I mean, the list goes on because she'd taken the time to have those curious conversations and to really focus on understanding what the other person had to say. And with if we don't, we're moving in such a pace that we're missing out on all the good stuff in life. Yeah, that's I, it resonates very strongly. I, one thing that I really enjoyed in the book was the absorb model that you propose as a way to help you gather information through conversations. But maybe you could talk us through that model. Sure. So absorb is an acronym for active listening. And I think one of the things is that there's so many, when you actually get into active listening, you could talk about this for days because there's so many definitions and so many different people will say different things. But essentially, for Kathy and I, it's you first you need to be present so that you can active listen. So absorb is kind of an acronym for also being present. You got to give your attention to the speaker. You need to check your body language. You know, when you go into a conversation and there's a couple of different ways, like living in LA, I'd be talking to somebody and they're looking over my shoulder and clearly, you know, they're, they're not listening to you, you know, like who's walking in behind you and who should I be meeting? And, or it can be any number of things. So paying attention to body language, A, B, I'm trying to go through without looking at it. The S is to stop and focus again, as a, because we're so, just, as you were saying, we are in such time deficit. We're also in such focus deficit and we're in presence deficit. And so it's that second reminder to just stop and focus and give the speaker your full attention. O is for being open and non-judgmental, which is the most important piece. Because I think often when we go into conversations, we think we're, we know what we're going to hear or we're listening with a lens 
that, you know, we might not be aware of. So it's that reminder of being present to open, be open to listen, to understand what the other person is saying. R is by repeating by paraphrase. So, you know, I heard you say, or what I, I think you're saying is whatever, it's providing an opportunity to get on the same page with the speaker. So you're ensuring that what they're saying is exactly what you're hearing. And then the B is becoming the gremlin. So that's that little voice in our head or internal voice that you might be hearing right now. And it competes with our ability to listen. And so having that awareness of our internal narrative to be able to turn it down so that we can be fully present and actively listening to the person that we're speaking with. Because if we're not listening, here's the cliff notes. If you're not listening, how come you're having a conversation? It's mm. very profound, isn't it? And, and I think we forget that often, right? Mm. But really and truly, if you're not listening, there's no point in having the conversation. So you can't have an effective conversation if you're not present, because then you can't listen. And if you're not listening, you're not going to be curious. And then what's the point? So that's the foundation. You know, you really need to be present and listen. And then it becomes a lot easier to be curious from there because you're you're collecting the data points. You know, you actually you're connected with the person you're speaking to and you're messaging like, I see you. I want to hear you. I want to understand you. And, and often in our busy time restrained world, we're doing too many things at once. And this whole multitasking nonsense, it doesn't work. Try reading a menu and having a conversation at the same time. It's just, it, we can't do it. Hmm. Absolutely. I, and I'll have to say, I, I did listen very carefully to this when I heard it. I was driving and, and I was multitasking for it and I, <laughs> I did not have an accident, but I completely agree. I think there's a lot of things you can't do. Driving, I guess, is a different part of your brain. But I, I quoted one of these points in this course that I was teaching this week, and that was that paraphrasing. And I think that that's, there's something very powerful in that. And you know, in my work, I train analysts uh, who it's critical for them to be curious and to apply a lot of these skills. And I think particularly in a lot of different types of analysis, there's a lot of time spent thinking on your own and you're coming up, you're trying to you know, look at evidence and you're trying to reach conclusions and make assessments on what you're seeing. But as we often say to our analysts, analysis is a team sport. And even though introverts are drawn to it, you have to work with a team and you have to test and create what we would call contestability, where you are encouraging others to challenge what you've said to ensure that that it is robust. So it's it's putting things out there, it's asking and it's listening and it's making time. I think one thing that I've learned over recent times is, and we say this often, you need to listen to everybody in the room. You don't just bring in subject matter experts, you bring in people who can think and who can listen well to what you're saying and who can then ask questions who that that subject matter experts might not think to ask. So I, I think all of these principles are very relevant in our workplace. But yeah, I really like that absorb model. It's given me a lot to think about. And I will say, um, you know, there are many of these skills that I don't apply well. I'm trying very hard to slow down and make more time, but also to even, and this is probably, you'll laugh at this, it's a pretty poor effort at being curious, but I'm trying to make sure I at least tack on after I've said something, the question, what do you think? Bit of It's a bit of a poor way of, of being curious because you've already kind of 
prejudiced people by telling them what you think, but at least it's my, my little mini step towards becoming a better listener. I, I really think that this would be a good point, though. Having talked about those uh, that absorb model, can you talk about the different kinds of listening approaches that people apply? Because I found this very insightful as well. It's sometimes, you know, what's going on in our head when we're listening? What are we thinking about? You talked about quietening the gremlins in our mind. But can we talk about mindset in listening and the kind of mindset that is most conducive to building better understanding? I think that people forget social media has made such an impact on us from the perspective of and and the internet, where we think that we're critical thinking, we have an opinion, we go online, we do our research, but just as you were saying, we keep it in isolation rather than actually having a conversation with others to collect different data points and different perspectives. But social media has also done this thing where we now live in these algorithms, right? So like if you're on social media and it's beautifully curated and you you love everything and then something that you don't like or do, you don't agree with, people will just like unfollow and they cut it out of their life. And we now do that in real life. We don't want to hear different perspectives. We don't want to hear different opinions. We really find friend groups that keep us together. And so it's, as you were saying that, it's reminding ourselves like, yeah, the absorb is really important, but we have to be open to listening to other perspectives first. And there's and it's great that you're curious that, that what do you think question, but it's reminding ourselves like how many perspectives that we don't agree with are we listening to online? How many friends are we seeking out that have different perspectives that we're open to listening to? Because often we live, it's like an I call it the algorithm effect. We live in our own algorithm and we're not even aware of what's going on outside of it. Well, I'm just going to say I love that concept, our own algorithm. That's a really powerful analogy, Kirsten. I'm going to have to, I'm going to steal that one as well, um, and I'll just make a, a quick response to that. And and we'll often say that when people are are setting up what we call structured analytic techniques, and it, I don't know if it's something you come across, but it's certainly used in the analytic world. Uh, there's a series of techniques, but it's an exercise that you will apply to try and solicit different perspectives on an issue. So to try to look at things from different angles. And what we'll often say is the most irritating person um, that you don't enjoy spending time with as an analyst, because they're always challenging you and, and asking you to justify and explain what you've said, is probably one of the most important people that you can invite into these uh, into these events, because otherwise you just really are encouraging groupthink. So that's great. I'm going to pilfer that um, analogy. I'll try and remember to attribute it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and well, it's it's super important because I think it happens with all of us. At, you know, every generation, every little group, who who cultural group, it doesn't matter what it is. We tend to stick together. We gravitate to, and we feel comfortable around, and that's just the way it is. And yet, we miss out on so much. And sometimes people will say, "Well, what if I?" disagree with whatever or you know in a in a work group well but if i put up my hand and i disagree with what the leader said what how is that going to work for me am i going to get fired you know all of these things that people have in their fear bucket so to speak because they just there is so much else going on in the world that's so challenging they are afraid to disrupt that boat and the other point, it was just when you were talking about listening, I th and I forget the, I think it was 2080 with leaders, the most effective leaders speak 20% of the time and listen 80, listen 
to those around them, because that's where they get all the information. That's where they can begin to understand. And from there, then they're making an effective decision because that whole, I mean, groupthink can be bad, but if, if it's used well, it's much more effective in problem solving than any individual can be. And there's lots of research around that. So it's just how we use the group in a constructive and supportive way that will help us move forward. Back to the other question about the choices of listening. This is our own little model that just seemed to make sense for us. And the first choice is that we choose not to listen. And we all have a right not to listen. It can be, you know, you're really tired and I just, can you give me half an hour and I want to have a nap and then I'm all yours. Or um, you're on an airplane and someone comes along and sits down beside you. Hi, where are you from? Where are you going? You, oh, I just want to sleep. And so we can respectfully decline from participating in a conversation. And so that's what we call level one or choosing not to listen. So in uh, level two, the dialogue in our head starts or the narrative. Um, oh, oh, I'd never do that. Oh, they shouldn't do that. I, I know I would never do that. That's far too scary. That's this, that's that. Our judgmental piece around us comes forward, surfaces, and it colors, it biases how we're responding. Because we're not really, we're not listening to what they're saying, number one. And number two, our, all that conversation in our head has taken over. And so we're not present. We're not able to decide to really carry on the conversation. Something very judgmental, it will come out of our mouths. And it's not helping the situation at all. The next one is the same scenario, but instead of about ourselves, we're thinking about the other person. So haven't they learned anything? Um, they should know that they should never do that based on what they've been like before. Oh, bad decision. We're very judgmental from their perspective. And once again, we are not present in the conversation. Our head's just going on this reel about all the things that they're doing wrong or are about to do wrong or the choices they're making that are bad. And it, that comes with not only in work, but in, in also with parents and kids. I'm not going to let them do that. You know, they're going to ruin themselves. They're going to this, they're going to that. And when I was a child, that would never have happened. And they, you know, so we mix up the I and the them too. And, and it's just, we've shut the person down. So we are not talking, but we're also not listening. We're just hearing this conversation in our heads. That's creating a lot of bias, limiting beliefs. And it's not allowing us to be open and non-judgmental in terms of tra messaging trust and the other person's ability to make any decision for themselves. Choice four is around the absorb model. And in that one, we're just present. We're listening. We've dimmed down our gremlins. They're not participating. So we can really listen to what the person has to say. And when I was doing my coach training, because I remember thinking, how will I know what question to ask? If I'm in this place where I'm just listening, how am I going to know what the next thing I should do? And someone said, one of the instructors said, just be there and trust it and the right question will come. And I thought, oh yeah, right. And it does. Because if you're really present in the conversation, the question bubbles up because you're present and, and you do know what you want from a curiosity perspective, what's the next thing is you want to understand about the person. We're open, we're non-judging, we're really listening with intent to the other, what the person's saying, and respecting them for it, and then asking that question that'll allow them to even go deeper. 
in the conversation. And that's the release that brings in the release of the dopamine and the oxytocin because we're just feeling really good. And it's curiosity is very powerful from a neuroscience perspective. And it does release dopamine. It does release oxytocin. And it just, it makes us feel better. The fifth choice is the same as the fourth. And yet it's, it's primarily in any situation where there's a hierarchy. Because in the fourth, we're really listening. We're choosing to listen as an equal. Sometimes we're listening as a leader to an employee. Sometimes we're in a situation where there's been um, something that they've done that we're questioning and we need to have them change their behavior. And so we have skin in the game. It's different. We're in four. We don't really have skin in the game. We're being curious. And that's, we just want to better understand. In the fifth one, we have skin in the game. So we need to have this person change their behavior. So we want to understand them. So, you know, if, for instance, someone is supposed to start work at eight o'clock, they're repeatedly coming at 8.30, the office isn't open, the phone's not being answered, et cetera. You can have that conversation, the same conversation around what are the reasons for, you know, we need you here at eight o'clock and we need to know that you'll be here and we, you can be relied on. What can you do to ensure that you get here at eight o'clock or, you know, however you want to do that. So we are, we have skin in the game in terms of the outcome of the conversation. And yet we're being curious in the conversation to better understand where they're at. And it may be my partner's gotten really sick and I've got to get kids off to school and it's just not working. And I was fearful to just say anything because I can't lose my job. And it's just, okay, so let's begin to figure out how we can do this moving forward. You know, who else can, how can we trade this off or how can we accommodate or my, the role of the listener is they're more involved in the outcome of it. Where in the fourth one, we're involved only in understanding, not further than that. The fifth one, we need to understand and we're involved in the outcome because we need to have the doors open, the phones on at eight o'clock. And we call them choices because it's totally our choice how we decide to listen or not. That's I, I love that the fact that yeah we are making choices and I think even just making us making ourselves aware uh, and conscious of the fact that these are choices that we make it, it's extremely helpful because it is very easy I know for myself it's easy to drift into that I'm hearing and I'm making I'm evaluating and I'm evaluating in in not in a very nice way often that's being quite honest you know the, the, I certainly can do that very easily and yet there's not a lot of happy hormones being produced in that process, is there, you know, in contrast, as you said, to the fact that there's something that goes on neurologically that actually reiterates that desire to be curious, you know, that you you can almost become hooked on curiosity through this hormonal response. Can I just ask, Matt, perhaps just a couple of questions to finish with? One is that we've gone through a lot of uh, suggestions and tips now. Do you have any more general tips for people who are thinking, look, I'm just not applying my natural curiosity very well, what's the first step for people to reinvigorate that natural curiosity and to apply that to their relationships? First of all, that's a big first step. When they're aware of what they're not doing, anybody becomes aware of something that's not happening. We have to be there before we can move forward. So that's a big, it takes a lot of courage to to be aware of it and to accept it and to want to move forward and to learn. So um, once that happens, there there are a couple of things. It depends on, I mean, I think both of us believe that um, if we're running three quarters empty, it's hard for us to make any change. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes just tweaking that piece, being aware of, okay, I'm really stretched right now. And looking, exploring internally what's going on for us and what changes can we make and what gives us pleasure and focus more on what gives us pleasure because we get sometimes to the place where it's, oh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this, but I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to. And yet sometimes when we create boundaries or we weigh what we want to do and what we might not have to do if we chose not to, it gives us um, more joy in our lives more freedom. It may be taking a few deep breaths every so often during the day. For some people, it's meditating. For others, it's just sitting quietly, envisioning being in a really calm place or a place that you love or spending time talking to someone who really nourishes you. So it really depends. But that joy piece has to be there because if we're not nourishing ourselves, we're not able to nourish or move forward and make change. And once that happens, then we can start doing it easily. It doesn't have to be huge questions. It doesn't have to be big, intentional. We can just start even asking ourselves questions. And and that self-exploration and reflection and bringing more joy into our lives is a great example. You know, what am I doing? You know, how come I'm feeling so tired all the time? What could I be doing differently? We can start being curious with ourselves and figuring out what changes we can make that's supporting our learning about curiosity. And it's also supporting our reflection and learning that we can put ourselves in a better place. And once we're in the better place, then we can, for some people, it's starting at home and asking a few questions. For some, it's starting at work or starting with a great friend, or it doesn't matter, just someplace that's safe, beginning to ask those open questions of another person, the open questions that start with who, what, where, when, and how. Um, why is also an open question, but it can be heard as judgmental, even if we're not saying it from a judgmental perspective. So it's not one that we encourage people to use, but just starting and open questions are questions that can't be answered with a yes or no. So people have to give you more information, but just by asking, um, you know, instead of saying, do you want chicken for dinner tonight? Well, do I want chicken? I don't know. Or do you want, what would you like for dinner? Oh, well, and it opens your mind differently and gives us a different layer, so to speak, that's going to take us deeper into the conversation and help us better understand the other people. You're so much kinder. As you asked that question, I was like, you. it's so hard to be curious with other people if you aren't first curious with yourself. Because <laughs> one of the beauties of curiosity, especially in conversations, is when you understand who you are, what you stand for, what you want, filling your cup, just as Kathy was saying, you can go into a conversation and say, it's not about me. I know who I am. I know what I want. It's not my thoughts and perspectives because I'm secure. I know what that is. You don't feel threatened. That lens of judgment melts away because it's like, it's not about you, right? It's about better understanding that person. So a hundred percent start with yourself. Fill your, what do you need? What makes you feel good? Like start there and get curious with yourself. And the more curious you're with yourself, the easier it's going to be to be curious with others because you have that aha moment where you're like, oh, it's not about me. This is about them. <laughs> and it's so much easier to relinquish that control. That self-awareness piece is such a key piece in terms of having effective conversations. Because if you don't have that self-awareness, then you're taking on everybody's problems as your own. And we do, we judge to make ourselves feel better. 
because we want to protect our thoughts. We want to protect our beliefs. We want to protect what we stand for. And so when we can get really clear about like, yes, this is who I am. This is what I stand for. This is what I need. This is what I'm willing to struggle for. And that's me. Now I want to know, Ken, who are you? And what do you believe? And what do you stand for? And what do you struggle for? Whatever you say isn't about me. And so there's a clear delineation between, do you know, understand what I mean? Whereas when we don't have that clarity, it meshes together where it's like, oh, well, he has a different perspective on that. Like he can't be right. I need to be right. Let me infringe my perspective to change him so that he can to make me feel better about how I feel. <laughs> or, or we make assumptions around, oh, I want everybody to be happy. Yeah. So what can I do to make everyone happy? And I worked with someone once who, a, a manager who said, my team isn't happy and I want them to be happy. So I've been ordering pizza every Friday for lunch. And why doesn't that make them happy? Well, mm. how are you going to find that out? One was on a diet. One was glucose. I mean, you know, it just, it goes on and on and on. When we make those assumptions, no, it doesn't work. Yeah, oh, look. Thank you. There's so much that you've shared that's so insightful. And I just want to say a huge thank you to you both for your time today. If people are interested to understand more about these things that we're talking about, I would really encourage them to uh, buy a copy of The Power of Curiosity, or you, and you can listen to it on Audible like me if you trust that you can multitask and drive and listen at the same time <laughs> safely. But otherwise, if, if anyone wants to know more about the Institute of Curiosity or to follow you, where, where can they find you? Find us online, instituteofcuriosity.com. And we're on Instagram at Institute of Curiosity. Yep. I will just offer, reach out. Like all of our information is on the website or reach out, DMS through Institute of Curiosity. We, there's so many resources that we have. So, you know, if there's a question, if somebody's thinking like, I don't get this or I don't reach out to us. It's just, that's the fastest and easiest way. And we're happy to help in any way we can. We got awesome. online programs, we got books, we got worksheets, we got a whole bunch of stuff. What I'm saying is we got something for you and we can help. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, listen, thank you again. Thank you for having us. It was really fun. It sure was. Thank you. Thank you.